what does a mature faith look like? In what way does a mature Christian faith differ from that of just an ordinary believer who's going along trying to trust the Lord? That's what we're going to look at today in the last section that we're going to be considered in season two of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Welcome, welcome indeed as we close out season two of our time together, together, journeying through the whole Bible, studying the whole Bible together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we are in the last, we're going to spend a couple of days closing out and finishing off Genesis before we launch off in season two. So a quick reminder, there's always a transcript of roughly what I say available in the episode notes of any audio version of this podcast, as well as links where you can connect to the ministry and other teaching resources I've put on there. So you're very welcome to access all that material, copyright free, take it, do with you what you wish with it, with my blessing. But with that, I'll say bye-bye for now. I'll come back at the end and update you a little bit of what's going to happen uh, before we jump off into season three. But other than that, I'll see you in a few minutes. Bye for now. Today, we're looking at the last five, ten verses of Genesis chapter 50. We're closing off the book of Genesis and we're going to look at it and consider what it means to have a mature faith. As we know, the Bible talks a lot about faith, but what is not often mentioned is the fact that the Bible usually speaks of faith as being something that we should develop, something that is part of our discipleship. We should see it grow, and it talks about and gives us lots of strategies on how we can develop a mature Christian faith. As a matter of fact, the book of James in the New Testament gives a whole chapter over, some would say the whole book over, to the idea of developing mature, resilient Christian faith, even in the light, in the James teaching, of struggles that we have to deal with. So my question today is, what does a mature Christian faith look like? What does a mature faith look like and how does it differ from the life of just an ordinary believer who's doing their best to trust the Lord? Well, I think this last closing section of this book of Genesis, this last chapter, is an illustration of the end of the life of a man who exhibited a mature faith and also the son of that man who, in the light of his circumstances, demonstrated and is seen to have the most incredibly deep, mature Christian faith. Now, as a matter of fact, The people listed in this book are listed in the book of Hebrews as an example of mature faith, as an example of people who belong to what is described in the book of Hebrews as the great roll call of faith. So we're going to begin to look at the faith of Joseph, particularly today in Genesis chapter 50. And I'm going to pick up where we left off last time and begin reading at verse 15, which tells us this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers 
the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. So let's pause there and try and put this in perspective of what's happened. If you've been with us on this journey, in fact, if you've been on this whole journey as we've been going through the book of Genesis, then you'll know that Jacob, Joseph's father, had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph, of course. The story narrative as it went along, particularly in these last 13 chapters, told us that Joseph was actually, early on it told us that Joseph was his father's favourite. And for that reason and other reasons, they got jealous of him, so much so that they actually sold him into slavery. Now the slave owners who took him, they took Joseph into Egypt, where he was sold and became a slave to a powerful person in Egypt. But then, unjustly, he ended up thrown in prison. But following a series of what could only be described as near miraculous events, he goes from being prisoner to prime minister in a single day. He finds himself second in command of all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh has more power than him in the land. Now the Lord did all of this because a famine was coming. In the fullness of time we come to understand that. And he had raised Joseph up in this position so that he was not only able to save the Egyptian nation, but his own family as well and the emerging nation of Israel. Now, this has been a long involved story. And if you've been tracking with me as we've been going along through the the book of Genesis, hopefully you will remember and recall that story. But now here we are and we're getting to the very last chapter and Jacob, Joseph's father, has died. And we've been all the way through the death and burial of Jacob. What I've just read for you picks up what has happened after the father was buried. They've taken him back into Canaan and buried him there. Now at this point, the brothers become fearful because they've thought that maybe the fact that while their father was alive, that that was a restraint on Joseph. That kept him from retaliating against all the evil things they had done to him when he was young. So they're thinking, so now he's dead, what's going to happen now? Remember, Joseph, their brother, is a really powerful man in Egypt, and he could have retaliated if he wanted to. So that's their fear, and that's the way they react in these verses. With their father Jacob now dead, they say, oh dear, we're potentially in big trouble here. Perhaps Joseph will remember this, he'll hate us. Maybe he'll repay us with evil for the evil that we did to him when he was young. So the death of their father has provoked this rather fearful reaction. They're also probably feeling incredibly guilty and worried about the fact that now their father is dead, that Joseph will have free reign and power and authority to get even with them in whatever way he wants, remembering what they did to him when he was a a young lad. So they decide to send messengers ahead to Joseph, giving a message which said, before your father died, he said to say this to Joseph, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sins and the evil things they did to you. But when Joseph hears this, interestingly, we see his reaction is to cry. Now, I've wondered about whether this is true, whether Jacob really told them to say this or was that just something they made up out of fear in an attempt to sort of uh, bring this issue up or even deceive uh, Joseph. 
But as I've wrestled with this passage, I have to say I've not been able to find anything in the text or in the commentaries that confirm or deny that statement one way or another. But what I do see is the fact that Joseph had expressed forgiveness to them earlier in the story. And if they felt that this issue needed to have been dealt with, then really, and it wasn't sort of finished off at that point, really they should have come back to him, well, immediately, certainly quicker than this. They should have done it quicker. I think it's always good advice to say that when there's something in the background that suggests there's still an ongoing need for reconciliation, the quicker you get it out in the open, the quicker you do it, the better. The longer things are left, the more they can fester and the more difficult it can become to sort them out. But whatever the case of what is actually going on here, we can see that because Joseph, of course, has forgiven them, but definitely these brothers are finally reaching a point where they're coming before Joseph, albeit initially through a third party, and saying, we did these wrong things in the past, please forgive us. I personally think they totally misread the situation because we were told in verse 17 that when they spoke to him or the message was given to him that that Joseph immediately wept. So it seems to me that his heart had clearly softened towards them. And that's why when he heard this, he just broke down and cried again. But at least they've got to a point where these brothers have acknowledged verbally their sin against him. And now it appears they want to be fully reconciled and want to be forgiven. Which is why verse 18 then tells us, So then the brothers came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Now I want to explain the blank space that sits between verses 17 and verses 18 that I've just read. Verse 17 tells us about the messengers going to see Joseph and delivering the message. And then he weeps. And then verse 18, which would assume after a period of time, the brothers travel and show up. And so I want to sort of think about what does that tell us that happened between those two verses. We are told in verse 17 that they went back and told the brothers, the the messengers, and one would assume they said, okay, he, he wept, his heart was soft, so he appears to be receptive. It doesn't appear like he's going to take vengeance on us. So let's go back and see him. So that to understand that as an explanation of what's going on in the blank space between verses 17 and 18, we do have to read a little bit between the lines and assume that during that time that the reconciliation was in in a sense completed in the hearts of both sides and it's been bedded in and really understood by this communication. But what's really fascinating to me is that they now turn up in verse 18 and they bow down and say, we are your servants. Do you get that? Do you see what's going on here? Do you remember that if we go way back in the story of Joseph and the brothers, the main thing that got him into trouble in the beginning of the story, the main thing that happened way back in Canaan when Joseph was a teenager was he had a dream. When he was a young lad, Joseph had a dream that his brothers would be seen to bow down before him. And that's the main thing that aggravated them in the beginning, yet it is the fulfilment of this dream happening here. Exactly what he dreamed would happen years before has now literally come true at this point. 
They are bowing down before him and saying, we are your servants. So the big question is, how is Joseph going to respond to that? What's he going to do? Well, look at what he says in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Don't worry, he's saying, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to try and even get even. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to do any of that. But his explanation is, this phrase, am I in the place of God? That's the rhetorical question he asks. Am I in the place of God? So what does that mean? Well, when you read the commentaries and other things, the Bible excerpts suggest that there are two things going on here and are being suggested by the use of this phrase. Firstly, it means that he's saying, I'm not in the place of God to judge you. But also, secondly, it means it's also not my place to interfere with what God has done in this situation. That's not my job. Now, remember, I've always, I keep saying as we've gone through this story, is always hold any of the individual stories in the book of Genesis, hold them within the context and the meaning of the whole book. I don't know how many times I've said that already as we've been on the sixth month journey through the book of Genesis, but I need again to talk about this for a second. You see, the book of Genesis opens with the story of everything from the creation and the fall and all that follows it. God is seen to create the world. He creates a paradise, but then Satan comes in and he says to Adam and Eve, you know what? If you eat that tree, you will be like God. Do you remember that? Well, here we are now in the last chapter, chapter 50. We're at the end of the entire book. And here, another man asks the question and says, am I in the place of God? What Adam and Eve did right back in the opening chapter of Genesis was to think, to imagine, to be tempted to imagine what it would be like if they could be in the place of God. In Genesis a man and his wife are tempted to say, we can be like God. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be in the place of God. Yet this book ends with another man who has learned to say, I am not in the place of God. It is not my place to think that way. And that's why he says this. This is one of the most profound verses in all of Genesis. Maybe the whole Testament. Some might say even the whole Bible. Look at verse 20. He then says, you intend to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of lives. Look at that. This is important. Joseph said, what you did to me was evil. What you guys did to me was intended for evil. You sold me into slavery. You threw me in a ditch. You might as well have killed me. But what you intended for evil, God has taken and used to save many lives. What an amazing, profound thought that is. But what's behind this? Well, I want to close today by unpacking this single verse for a moment, because I do believe there's some very, very important stuff to be understood and applied here. Behind this statement lies the fact that what is being said is God is in control of what is going on in all of our lives. God is sovereign. So whatever you do or whatever happens to you, it won't, in the great scheme of things, thwart 
the plans of God. Even the evil plots of men and women, they all can still be used by God to bring about an outcome whereby people can still praise him. God can even use the anger, the wrath, the cynical manipulations and machinations of people, even those when they're applied against us, he can turn it into something that is for our good and is for the greater good, the good of others. And that's a pretty profound thing. But now, if we put these two things together and just look at the opening verse when, when Joseph says, look at this verse when Joseph says, what you meant for evil against me, God has meant for good. Just look at it and underline the word evil, which is what man intended, and underline the word good, which is what God intended with these things. That means, what that tells us, we can look at anything that happens to us and we can say, we can acknowledge, yes, that was wrong. We can even say sometimes that that was evil. That shouldn't have happened to us. These things that you've had to suffer on, friends, sometimes they are evil and they should not have happened to you. But still listen to this. You can also say no matter how bad, no matter how evil, no matter how uncomfortable that was, God can and still will use it for good. Like Romans 28, 28 reminds us, all things can work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So this statement of Joseph shows a phenomenal act of faith on his part. He didn't just look at the evil situations he'd been subjected to in his life. He looked at them and he saw them and he interpreted them through the eye of faith. He saw the purposes of God through them. And what that says is all these situations, even the, the selling into slavery, the threat to his life, all of those things that caused him to end up in Egypt, it was because of that fact that he was in Egypt that God was able to work in his life. And he ended up saving not only the whole nation of Egypt, but his own family and the nation, the burgeoning nation of Israel as well. God, he is saying to them, he put me in a place because of your wickedness, but God used those wicked acts for good for a whole nation, for a whole region, in fact, for the whole world. So what anybody does to you, no matter what, you need to understand, beloved, that that cannot thwart the plans and purposes of God. But your part in it is to see these things from God's point of view and not to come alongside and see them just as the evil that people do. They are things that God can take and use for your good and the greater good. But what Joseph will say in response to all of this, well, we look at that when we return next time in what will in fact be the final episode in our journey together through the book of Genesis. So goodbye for now. Okay, friends, we're nearly there. We're nearly at the end. Please do ensure you come back again next time because we'll be closing off the book of Genesis. I'd just like to remind you that there are free resources available for you in the episode notes of any audio version of the podcast. In a couple of days, we're going to be launching off in the book of Matthew. And I need to just bring you up to date on a few small changes I've been making. Many thousands of you, tens of thousands of you, in fact, have been following along 
downloading and listening to the audio version of this podcast. Now you may also know that a few of you watch this in video format, but less than 2% of people actually watch the videos. And I've never really been comfortable with that aspect of it. I much prefer the audio environment where I feel we can connect in a much more intimate level with each other and with God and his word by just uh, using it, by approaching it from an audio point of view. Also by recording it uh, in video, it reduces the quality of the audio because I have to pull the audio uh, off, uh, off the video recording. So from the beginning of our working through season three, the main teaching is going to be recorded audio only. Now, I'm aware that some of you really like to access this through the longer format where I maybe get a whole section together or a whole chapter is dealt with or the whole particular narrative is put in one place. So my plan is still to create a video version of it, but it will just be the audio file maybe put on an animation with the text as they go with the text as it's being read along. I think that, uh, that that will still give people what they need. It will actually save me quite a bit of time. It'll reduce my uh, recording and editing time by around about a third. Each 20, 20 to 25 minute episode, forgetting the preparation time, which is probably three, four, five hours in preparation time, the actual recording and editing process takes I usually start about 7 in the morning and finish any time between 11.30 and 1. So it takes all morning. I shall be able to save up at least an hour in the editing process by doing it this way, which then I hope enables me to free up some free time to maybe uh, be in the process of creating some additional help and resources to people. So that's the plan, and I hope you'll stay with me as we make those modest changes. But you know what, friends? I just want to sign off by saying thank you so much for being making the commitment to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily lives. I know I'm benefiting from it. I'm sure you are too. And I trust I'll see you back here tomorrow and we'll continue doing the same thing. But if you are enjoying it, if you appreciate it in any way, then please consider sharing the link or liking it on social media, whatever the places, parts of the internet you happen to exist in, why not share what we're doing together so that other people too can benefit from studying the Bible and making it part of their everyday. But other than that, that's bye for today and I'll see you right back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. It'll be whatever day you get your little notification or you decide to go through the next episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.